Our series for this year is called Discovering the Mission of God. And we've been focusing for the last several weeks on the mission of God as revealed through Jesus himself. Stan doing a wonderful job last week of talking about the fact that Jesus was literally God in the flesh, manifesting God's love to us. And then, of course, our response is to love him in return because he first loved us. Today, we're going on another aspect of Jesus' teaching about what it is to be a part of the mission of God. Twenty-five years ago, a video came out called the Matthew video. It was an attempt to basically dramatize the life of Jesus, and the people who produced it literally took uh, the NIV, uh, Gospel of Matthew, and they recreated it word for word in a movie format. Uh, at the time, it was the best dramatization of the life of Jesus I'd ever seen. Now, I think The Chosen probably has now come along and been even better. But, but the Matthew video uh, starred an actor by the name of Bruce Marciano playing the role of Jesus. He's now 67 years old. And so you can imagine 35 years ago, he was in his early 30s, what Jesus would have been when he was during his ministry. When Marciano got to the end of his acting of that particular dramatization, they ended the Gospel of Matthew with Bruce playing the role of Jesus, walking away from the camera there on the front of the Sea of Galilee, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And as he's walking away, he turns around and he simply motioned for people to follow him. It was one of the highlights to me of that particular dramatization of the life of Jesus. Because in so many ways, that's exactly what Jesus does. Yes, Jesus came to die for our sins, but Jesus also came to call us to follow him. You turn into the opening chapters of the Gospels. And for instance, John chapter 1 you have uh, Andrew and you have John. They're down there. They're disciples of John the Baptist. Something that we may not realize is that a lot of the guys who followed Jesus were first disciples of John. And John had baptized Jesus, and he sees Jesus walking by, and he says, look, the Lamb of God. And Andrew and John then follows Jesus. And I want you to notice that phrase there, they followed him, because that word followed becomes a linchpin word of several of the incidents that happened later on. You go a few more verses down in chapter 1 of John. Jesus goes and finds Philip, and what does he say to him? He says, follow me. And then you turn over to Matthew chapter 4, and you have Jesus going back up into Galilee. You see, he had spent some time with Peter and Andrew and James and John, but then he had gone out into the wilderness. He had been tested there. They had gone back up north where they worked for a living as fishermen. And Jesus goes back up there and officially calls them into his discipleship. Notice the language here. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net in the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me. Now that phrase there, come follow me, is going to be especially important for Peter. Peter is going to struggle with that concept. In fact, if you turn over to John chapter 21, the last 
This is what's amazing about this. This is the, you know, the last of Jesus' interaction with the apostles. He's restoring Peter uh, because of something Peter had done during Passion Week. And Jesus had talked about how Peter was fixing to die. Basically saying, here's how you will die after you have completed your ministry. And then Jesus said to him, follow me. Same thing he had said three years earlier. And he looks back. John just so happens to be behind them. And he looks back and he says, what about John? How is he going to die? And once again, Jesus is like, Peter, you're always worried about other things. And so he says, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. I mean, you've got to ask yourself, what in the world was going on in Peter's life that made Jesus have to emphasize over and over again, you've got to follow me. Now, this invitation from Jesus, what's amazing about it is it's still an invitation 2,000 years later. We will sing here in a few moments an invitation song. But it's not my invitation. It's not the elder's invitation. It's not the invitation of the Hendersonville Church of Christ. It is the invitation of Jesus Christ. In fact, you get to the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible. Look at the invitation. The spirit and the bride says, come. And let the one who hears says, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of water of life. I mean, you get to the end of the Bible, and what does Jesus say to us? He says, I want you to come. Follow me. And yet with that invitation comes an obligation. As I said a few moments ago, Jesus didn't just die for our sins. He invites us to follow him. And we see that invitation probably clearer in a couple of different texts in the New Testament than anywhere else. Luke 9 verse 23 is one of those. Matthew chapter 16 has the same version of it in Matthew's account. Where Jesus turns to the apostles and he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must. I know that we don't like to think that there are some must. That there are these requirements that we've got to follow, uh, that we've got to do in order to follow Jesus. But Jesus says there are. In fact, in the original Greek, this is an imperative. This is a command. I'm reminded of my dad back when I was a kid. I'd be sitting on the couch watching Gilligan's Island in the afternoon. And dad would go, Les. And I'd turn around and he'd say, mow the yard. Which meant, turn off Gilligan's Island, get up, and go and do what I've told you to do. And that's the same kind of language Jesus uses here. Now, what's interesting about it is that if you go back just a few verses earlier, you find that Jesus doesn't call us to do anything, that he doesn't go ahead of us and do himself. In fact, notice the language in verse 22 of the same chapter. And he said, the Son of Man must. And then you have the description of Passion Week. What happened this week, some 2,000 years ago? The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must. Notice the language there. He must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. And so you have Jesus saying, I'm not going to do or call you to do anything that I don't go ahead of you and do myself. 
And then notice the next phrase back in verse 23. Whoever wants to be my disciple must. And then he says what you must do. You must deny yourself. I I wish our English Bibles caught the force of that phrase there. They really don't. There There are several words for deny, but this particular word is an intensive word. It's a word that if, if I could just kind of summarize it, whoever wants to be my disciple must absolutely, positively deny themselves. I mean, it's an intensification of the original word there found in the Greek. And it has to do with the fact that just a few minutes earlier, Peter had, some, had done something. You see, when Jesus said that the Son of Man must, go, suffer, die, and be raised the third day. Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And what you see is Peter's attitude in response to what Jesus said he had to do. Peter's like, no, that's not the agenda I have for you, Lord. And so that's not going to happen to you. I like the way Eugene Peterson translates this verse because I think it really demonstrates what Jesus was trying to say. This is Peterson's version. He's modernized it for us. Then he told them what they could expect for themselves. Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not the dry in the driver's seat. I am. Have you ever had someone, when you're driving the car... To tell you what you were doing wrong the whole time. You ever had that happen? You know? Uh, you're falling too close. You're going too fast. You took that turf too quick. You're not paying attention to what's behind you. You know? And, and, and finally, you're just like, okay, so you pull off the road, you get out, and they go, what are you doing? He said, no need of both of us driving. Come over here and drive the car. You know? That's what Peter was doing. That's what a lot of us do. That's what I do sometimes in my relationship with Jesus. I'm trying to tell Jesus how to drive the car. And Jesus is basically saying to me, you cannot do that. And so Peter struggled, like most of us do, with letting Jesus doing the driving, which means denying ourselves. Now, this word denying becomes very important in relationship to Peter, if you just think about it for a few moments. Of all the words Jesus could have picked, why deny yourself? You go forward in time. This is Passion Week. This would have happened 2,000 years ago, either this Wednesday night or this Thursday night, depending on how you date the crucifixion. They're in the upper room. Jesus is fixing to go out to Gethsemane. Judas is fixing to come and bring the soldiers and have him arrested. And as they're leaving, notice the text there. This very night, you'll all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And do you remember what Peter said? Peter's response is, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Once again, who's in the driver's seat? Peter thinks he is. He's the one in control of what's taking place in his relationship with God. And, of course, we know from history that that's not the case at all. Jesus' response to him is, Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, 
You will, and look at the word there, deny. That word with this intensification is only used like five or six times in the New Testament. It's used back in Luke 9, 23, and the exact same word is used here. The very thing that Jesus had told Peter, if you're going to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. And can I tell you the problem with you? It's not about you denying yourself. It's about you even denying me. You're going to do it three times. That's why after the resurrection, Jesus keeps saying to him, follow me, follow me, follow me. And it's easy for us to look at Peter and say, how could he do it? But if we're honest with ourselves, we ourselves have probably done it as well. On occasions, perhaps more than even Peter did. That same word, that intensification, you will absolutely, positively deny that you know me. And we know that he did. I like what Cranfield said in his commentary on Luke chapter 9. He said, to deny oneself is to turn away from the idolatry of self-centeredness. I think if there is a sin in America today, the idolatry of America is this sense that we are free to do anything that we want to do. We have this right from God to pursue happiness, but it's our happiness. And whenever I hear the Constitution you know, say that you know, we've been endowed by our Creator with these three inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, our problem is we get that pursuit of happiness all wrong. Because it's only happiness... In relationship to God. That's the right that we have. And so we see this self-centeredness as Americans. And they had it in the first century. But I don't think they have it near as much as we do. And here's God saying to us. Just like he did 2,000 years ago. To those people along the Sea of, of Galilee. If you're going to be my disciple. You've got to deny yourself. And then that next phrase. And take up your cross. Now, we read that, and it doesn't impact us like it impacted them. Now, we, we're aware of the crucifixion of Jesus. I get it. But crosses are not a part of our everyday life. You see, in the ancient world, you saw pictures like this all the time. I mean, on a regular basis, there would be people who would have these crosses. And by the way, they didn't carry the entire cross. They carried the cross beam, the very top of the cross. And they would put it on their shoulders like this. And they would carry it out to the place of execution. And whenever someone saw someone like this, they knew that someone was about to die. I mean, that was just a part of the entire process. And so here is Jesus. And Jesus says to us, after having just said to the apostles, I've got to go and die. He said, you too have got to pick up your cross as you follow me. And when you begin to kind of thumb through the pages of the Bible to ask, what in the world did he mean by that? How do we pick up the cross? I get how Jesus picked up the cross. He did it literally. I mean, he carried it out to Golgotha with finally Simon of Serene, helping him get it there. I get that. But how does Les Chapman pick up a cross? How do you pick up the cross? And what's fascinating is that in the New Testament, you have two ways that this takes place. The first way it takes place is when we go down into the waters of baptism. 
I love the way Paul put his conversion experience in Galatians 2.20. We sometimes sing a song based on this verse. I've been crucified with Christ. Notice the past tense there. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live, in the body I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me, there's that language from last week that Stan preached, who loved me and gave himself for me. And if you can just picture in your mind, you know, the Apostle Paul, he, you know, we know him as Saul of Tarsus before his conversion. And Saul of Tarsus is approached by Ananias and he, he, he restores his sight to him. And then they get up and they go down into the water. And Ananias, he buries he buries Saul of Tarsus into the water. And then as he raises him up, he brings up out of the water the Apostle Paul. Because Saul of Tarsus had been crucified with Christ. Romans 6 uses the exact same language for all of us who have been baptized. Every one of us. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We're buried with him through baptism into death. Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Baptism is a burial. I love this image. I mean, you go down into the water, you're under the water, you're buried into the water. And it is this spiritual death, burial, and resurrection with Jesus. And of course, to use other language, Paul says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him. In other words, when you go down into that water, you are dying to your old life. Saul of Tarsus is being left in the grave, and the Apostle Paul is coming out. But then there's a second one. And for a lot of us, it's this second one that we struggle with. You see, it's not just that we die in our conversion experience, and we're crucified there. But a disciple takes up their cross daily as they continue to die to the self and their old way of living. You see, the problem with Les Chapman when he was baptized is the same Les that went into the water came up out of the water, except for the fact that now his sins have been washed away. He had been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, and he had made a new commitment to follow God. But his habits were the same. His weaknesses were the same. And that was the truth of you as well. And what happens is, to use the words of Jesus, we take up our cross daily. Luke has that word daily. Matthew doesn't have it. Luke does. But we crucify things daily. If we follow Jesus as disciples, we must be prepared every day to crucify something that may be precious to us. A job. Money. An addiction. I mean, we could go around the room, and I promise you, all of us, if we just individually answered this question, what do I need to crucify to Jesus Christ today, probably all of us could come up with an answer. And if you're like me, you could come up with another answer tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. That's why we've got this anticipation resurrection program going on to help people just on a daily basis ask, what do you need to do? To be crucified with Jesus today. Paul would use this language. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death. Notice the language there. You put to death the misdeeds of the body. 
In other words, what God calls Les Chapman to do is on a daily basis look at those things that's not God honoring and crucify them. And I got to tell you, some of them just frustrate the living daylights out of me. Have you ever tried to get somewhere when you're in a hurry and every red light in Nashville catches you? You ever had that happen? I mean, you got an appointment, you're already running late because you didn't start on time, and the next thing you know, you're like, I, you know, why has every red light caught me? And of course, I don't know if y'all know how many red lights are between just my house and the church building. And so when someone says to me, how long does it take you to go from your house to the church building? It depends on the red lights. It can be everywhere from about 12 and a half minutes to about 30 minutes. I mean, it's just crazy. And, of course, sometimes you find yourself catching every single solitary one of them. And I have to sit there at a red light and say, God, I need to nail my impatience to the cross. My anger to the cross. My procrastination to the cross. For we know that our old self was crucified. Again, those words back in Romans chapter 6. So kill your earthly impulses, Paul said. Kill them. Greek word literally there, we get our word mortician from it. Old King James says mortify. I mean, it means to execute. There are certain sins, notice there, uh, loose sex, impure actions, unbridled sensuality, wicked thoughts, and greed. And by the way, that says NIV. That's not the NIV's translation of that. I think it's maybe the voice. But it's these things that you need to just literally kill off in your life. And you do that on a daily basis. And of course, if you're like me, only to have some of those things crawl back up into your life, and you've got to execute them again. Back when I was a youth minister many, many years ago, one of the things that we would often do is we'd set up a cross in a room and we would talk about how Jesus died for our sins and we'd pass out little index cards to the students and we'd say, you know, what sin do you need to nail to the cross? And we'd just ask them to write a sin on a card and, and then they'd take it up there and they'd take a nail and it was just a symbolic way, but it was a symbolic way that I think had a lot of power to it as it simply said, all of us need to continue picking up that cross, being made more and more into the likeness of Christ and less and less in the likeness of ourselves and follow Him. I think those are two of the most important words we'll ever hear. And of course, it begins, like I said, with baptism. Baptism is that first crucifixion. And if you've never been baptized, I would encourage you, why not today? You know, it was 51 years ago on Palm Sunday that a little 11-year-old boy in North Mississippi went to his mom and dad and said, I want to be baptized. and was baptized into Christ. I've been trying to crucify that old man ever since. And I will until the day I die until I'm finally made perfect in the arms of God. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Christ lives in me. I don't know who you see when you get up in the morning and look in the mirror, but let me tell you what we need to be seeing spiritually. I love this picture. 
It's a picture of a lady looking in the mirror. And in that mirror are reflections of her old self, a little bit. You can kind of see some of it there. But then it's also a reflection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to challenge you. When you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror, ask yourself, am I going to look more like Jesus Christ today than I did yesterday? And if the answer is yes, what do you have to put to death to get there? And it may be that you need to, like a little boy did some years ago, it needs to nail something on the cross. And perhaps it needs to be the old man by beginning going into the waters of baptism and giving your life to Jesus Christ. If you need to do that, there's not a better time to do it than right now. And if you'll just come and let us know, we'll help you as together we stand and sing.